You're listening to Atomic Moms. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hello, everybody. First, I want to say thank you so much for checking out our Atomic Moms shop. If you go to atomicmoms.com backslash shop, you can see my limited edition collaboration with artist Madeline Donahue. We have some tanks and some t-shirts still available, as well as we are offering three prints right now of her really fun tongue-in-cheek. I just love her artwork. So check that out and help support the podcast. I'd like you to take a moment to think of a few solo moms you know. Can you send some love out to them? Because in this conversation, we are celebrating solo moms. Any mother who parents alone, including divorced moms, widowed moms, military moms, single moms. Speaking of military moms, approximately 2 million children have experienced a parental deployment since 2001. 2 million children. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with two guests. They both happen to have been born in Sweden. The first is actress Malin Ackerman. We know her for her roles in Zack Snyder's Watchmen, Couples Retreat, Heartbreak Kid, 27 Dresses, and Showtime's Billions. She was married to her first husband for six years, and they divorced in 2013 when her son Sebastian was seven months old. In December 2018, she married British actor Jack Donnelly. Let's give her a call. Hi, Ellie. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Malin, we got to start with the important stuff. I have a six-year-old, too. You do? Yeah, Sabrina and Sebastian. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah, they sound like a children's book, don't they? Sabrina and Sebastian. Like, <laughs> I love it. I love those names. That's great. So I'm curious, like, what is Sebastian up to? And most pressing, has he decided what he wants to be for Halloween? <laughs> it's a those are very important questions. Um, well, he is a he's a science and robot boy. So mm. I mean, which is great for him and and nice for the future. I'm hoping NASA in the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but for me, I like I'm at a loss because I'm I'm more of an art person, and so whenever he comes home with these robots that we have to put together. I I don't even know where to start, but it's super fun to watch him get into it. But yeah, Halloween costume has definitely been decided and has already, the costume's already been delivered for whatever reason. I think it's kids in his school who have older siblings. He's decided uh, that he wants to be Pennywise from the It movies. Um, but then he saw the, the, the headpiece with like the, with the hair and then the, the makeup and he goes, yeah, but I don't really want to do like the wig and the makeup. And I was like, well, then you're just going to look like, like a, like a child from a Shakespeare novel. I mean, the outfit <laughs> is quite cute. <laughs> That's so funny. Maybe it, maybe it's because we're raising children in LA. My husband, Adam went to the premiere and then of course there were billboards all over town. Yeah. So my Sabrina actually suggested that her nanny be Pennywise for <laughs> 
Oh my God, are you serious? Yes. So there you go. I guess it's the thing. They're all talking about it. <laughs> it's trending with, it's ele- with the kindergarten yeah. and elementary school crowd. So you earned your solo mom wings through divorce. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into that time of life and how you managed it and some of the resources that you drew upon. Like, were there any books that you read or websites or songs you would listen to? Yeah. What was in your toolbox? So I I got, I had such a beautiful silver lining to my divorce and, and coming into motherhood. We sort of separated when Sebastian was only four months old. So not only going through becoming a mother, but going through divorce was just a double whammy. So, of course, you know, I tapped into my support group, with, which ended up being all of my friends, one of my girlfriends actually ended up moving in with me and, and helped me raise my son for about a good year and a half, which was incredible. Um, and, and it, it was, uh, it was mainly just other mothers, um, who I knew from before who were there to sort of be of support and babycenter.com, which was a great place to tap into just when I felt a little lost, which was pretty much on a daily basis of, am I doing things right? And what, what do other mothers think or say, or, you know, sort of in the spur of the moment. Um, it was really lovely. And I remember one mother who had said on this babycenter.com, she said, I wish that someone had told me to, you know, to be, to be more prepared. Cause we all have this sort of rose colored glasses fantasy of, motherhood of, of it's just going to be this beautiful thing. You have a child and now you're a mother and everything just goes smoothly. But, but, and it's, it's a shock, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things that shock you in that first year. And she said, just allow yourself to mourn the fantasy that you thought it would be, and then come into the beautiful reality that it is. And that was such a relief for me because I felt so bad about feeling pity about the whole situation, just going, what have I done? And I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this. This is too hard. And why aren't other mothers feeling this way? Why does everyone seem to just be floating around and going, everything's great. Motherhood is wonderful. So it was beautiful. That really um, released me, that whole thing of just being able to go, yeah, mourn the fantasy of what you thought it was. And then just kind of find the beauty of what it is. Um, And I loved that. And that really, really helped me. Mm. What message would you like to give to other solo moms out there now? Like if you could write on a message board right now, what would you write out to them? Just ask for help. Tap into your tap into your community. That is really for me, that's what helps me get through everything. And I am and that's coming from someone who hated asking for help and feeling like that was a weakness um, or feeling bad about asking for help because I didn't want to bother people. But I think any single mom out there just needs to be able to be okay with asking friends and family and, and so that you can take a little bit of time every day for yourself, which is really hard when you are a single mom, but taking that, that little bit of time so that you can recoup, regenerate, and be able to be present for your kid. In December of 2018, you remarried. Yeah. And... I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that introduction between Jack and Sebastian and how you were able to create this new family together. Yeah, sure. That was, it was an interesting um, beginning, to be honest with you, because I, 
was really at a place where I felt like I had finally, I mean, that those first two, two years of Sebastian's life, I was a mess and I was crazy and I was all over the place. And then the third year in, I decided, all right, I'm going to take some time now to like work things through, to go to therapy, take up meditation and, and really focus on parenthood and my son. And at the end of that year, I thought, yeah, this is it. Like, I've got this. I don't need anyone in my life. I never want to get remarried again. I'm not going to have more kids. Like, I'm good. I'm going to start a commune with my girlfriends. We'll raise our kids <laughs> together. This is awesome. And then Jack came into my life and I told him all of the above. And, um, and he was elated. He's like, great. No strings attached. It works for me. <laughs> but, but, you know, I had, I had known him for a couple of years and he had been around and I always had people around at my house. And my son was so used to just having people. So Jack was kind of coming around while we were dating and we just wouldn't be physical in front of him. He was just another friend around Sebastian. And I said to Jack, you know, don't worry about trying with my son or whatever. Like, you're not going to be his dad. Like this isn't getting, we're just having a fun swing. So don't, don't try to engage just to like show off or whatever. But it just was like two peas in a pod. They, they just, they, they just loved each other from day one. And uh, Seb got such a kick out of Jack and Jack got such a kick out of Seb. And I mean, it was real laughter and real games and they were just having a blast and it sort of melted my heart in, in, so many beautiful ways. Um, I loved it. And it wasn't just that, but of course that's a huge factor in going, wow, you know, I'm, my son will always come first, but to have someone in my life who can get as much joy out of my son as I do was amazing to watch. And it just came so organically. So it was, uh, yeah. So within weeks, both Jack and I were kind of like, well, you know, you know what we said in the beginning, how we weren't just a relationship out of this are you feeling now? <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I love you. I think I love you. So let's just go with it <laughs> and make it happen. Oh. Yeah. So it just happened without either of us wanting more. It just became what it is today, which is wonderful. You mentioned a little earlier that those first two years were difficult before you started therapy and getting some tools. And it's interesting to me as someone on the outside who sees you as, you know, California sunshine personified, right? Like that's to the, <laughs> to the public. That's what, when we see Malin, we're like, oh, she's just like so effervescent. And it's, oh. and I'm curious, how do you show up anyways? Like when you're not feeling that way because you're a human being mm. and you were just sharing that those first two years were trying at times. Yeah. How do you show up and shine even when privately you're going through a very difficult challenge? Well, it all depends. You know, I didn't always shine. I would show the, those, the first few months of my divorce, I was, I went back to work when Seb was three months old and, oh. um, and I would bring him with me. Uh, and luckily I was producing on the show. So I've made my office into a nursery mm. and he was on set with me, which was brilliant. Um, and I know how lucky I am to have had that, but I would show up to set and in tears and the making, she would be on set ready with Kleenex in between takes sometimes. And, you know, and that was also was such an, you know, it feels good. It feels cathartic to let it out and be vulnerable with somebody. And then you kind of move through it instead of moving past it. 
so that you can show up and be present after th- those moments. And so all the other moments, I grew up with a father who really, truly can find positive things in every, like you put him in a pile of shit and he will give you the positive of why this is good. And so he's taught me to always look for the silver lining and everything. And thanks to that, I really think that comparatively, I would look at my life and go, yeah, this is a hard time and a hard moment for me, but I know people who have it way worse. And I'm so lucky because I'm at a job. I bring my son. I have the best group of friends. You know, it's sure divorce is hard, and but we didn't hate each other. It wasn't like something terrible had happened. We had just fallen out, and that happens sometimes in life. So, so when you think about all those things, I, I kept sort of checking myself and going, "Yeah, this this is a shitty time, but I also have so many beautiful things. Like I, I'm spending so much more time with my friends, and my son is too. He has so many aunts and uncles, and look at what we ha- what we do have." So I think when we always focus on the positive, it's a bit easier to get through the days. But that doesn't mean not allowing yourself to be sad in moments as well, because that's important too. Well, thank you so much, Malin, for sharing all of this with us. Sure. We super appreciate your time. Have a really great week. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Take care. And now for our conversation with Dr. Marika Lindholm. After years of teaching gender and inequality as a professor at Northwestern University, sociologist Dr. Marika Lindholm became a solo mom herself. In this conversation, Dr. Lindholm shares the challenges of those early years after divorce caring for her two young children. She speaks frankly about the monsoon of mom guilt she experienced. And she talks about her decision to use the tools and educational background she had to create a platform in support of empowering solo moms everywhere, ESME.com. In this wide-ranging conversation, I mean, when are we not wide-ranging on Atomic Moms? You cannot keep me in a straight line. We discuss our own upbringings with single mothers, the policy changes Lindholm would like to see take effect in order to support solo moms, and the new anthology she co-edited titled, We Got This, Solo Mom Stories of Grit, Heart, and Humor. It includes stories from 75 solo moms, including Anne Lamott and Amy Poehler. We also chat about Lynn Holmes' experience as a child immigrating from Sweden to America at age six and her current life on a farm in New York with her second husband and their blended family of eight kids. I cannot wait for you to hear what her eldest daughter is up to now. Dr. Marika Linholm, <laughs> welcome to Atomic Moms. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, I have so much to ask you. I wish, you don't by any chance have any recordings of your lectures at Northwestern, do you? Because I wish you could just give all of us, you know, like a one-week seminar on everything that you taught for so many years there. They would make a great podcast. Oh, no, I don't. That would have been, yeah, that would be great. Um, I taught so many fun classes. I mean, I love them. My signature class was social inequality, race, class, and power. And I loved it because I was always walking this, I call it a balance beam, but you're trying to, um, you know, impart new information. You're trying to respect everyone's opinions. You're trying to get the 
people who don't like, usually talk about these issues to be able to talk about them. And I just kind of, I love the whole balancing act of teaching that class. It was one of my favorite classes, but yeah, I taught a ton of different courses and it was really, really fun. Quick question about that. Do you think today that students are more sensitive? Like, would it be harder to teach those courses now? Would that balancing act be harder or easier because people are more aware of what you're teaching? You know, I feel like we're more open-minded, but at the same time, there are so many sensitivities that it might be more difficult. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, because the country's so polarized, I have a feeling it would be even more acute. <laughs> you know, I think that the um, it would might be harder. I, I sometimes things happen in the world, and I'm like, oh, I would love to teach that. Or you know, I used to teach sociology of sport, and there's been so many things in that arena too. And I'm like, oh man, that would have been a great lecture. But no, I think um, I think that the students are more aware and gen- generally more open. But I also think that we have unfortunately uh, camps that have been set up, and so I think that would probably sort of undermine the openness in some ways. So I don't know. I I miss it. I'd love to go back and see what it would be like. Well, we're talking today about this incredible anthology, We Got This. You know, there's so many beautiful and funny and poignant essays in it. And I'll admit that I felt achy for my children's touch when I was reading it, which is really weird because I love to escape my children. (laughs) Uh, especially with a book. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm doing my Atomic Mom's homework. And I love that time. But when I was reading these essays, it made me long for my children. And it drove home, like, the tenderness and the complexities of motherhood from the spectrum of life experiences. And I'm curious, why was this labor of love so important to you to get out in the world? Well, first, I want to say that's such a fascinating uh, comment, and actually, I really appreciate it, because one of the main strands in the book is the fierce love that these solo moms have for their kids. So I think that's, you know, seems super appropriate now that you say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it felt so critical because I've been working um, on behalf as an ally of solo moms and the former solo mom myself. For so many years and just all the stigmas and stereotypes and misunderstandings and I just thought, you know, yeah, you can come out in the classroom and talk about it and you can write an article about it, but if you have the mom's voices, you know, all the myriad of beautiful essays and poems together talking about the solo mom experience, I think it's really powerful and it just undercuts all that silliness that's sort of out in the world and keeps being thrust upon solo moms. And as you say, you know, there's some are tender, some are funny, but it just really shows. And there's so much diversity of experience, whether you're, you know, solo by choice, solo by circumstance, whether your partner's deployed, perhaps your partner's incarcerated. So we really wanted to bring in that rich diversity and then show that despite all those differences, this resilience and the fierce love for their kids is just something that, you know, binds them all together. I also found this untapped reservoir of empathy for my own mother after reading this collection of essays. Because as some of my listeners have probably patched together, I was five years old when my parents got divorced, the same age as your daughter when you got divorced. And 
You share in your own essay in the book, um, and the essay is titled Butterfly and Sunshine. You share that you gave your five-year-old a parakeet out of guilt. And I have to tell you, Marika, I got a guilt-gifted parakeet too. (laughs) (laughs) No way. Yes. My mom gave me a parakeet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that solves everything, doesn't it? (laughs) Here's a parakeet, honey. (laughs) Someone to talk to. Uh, (laughs) She would, Betty the bird would sit on my shoulder and she would like pick at my teeth and... (laughs) (laughs) which now as a mother, I'm like, that is probably so unsanitary. But at the time, it just, I don't know. I loved that damn bird. And she, we went on a trip and she, uh, the person taking care of her, she actually, she got out and we never found her. You can relate. You can relate. I totally related to your story because in your story, the first parakeet gets out. And this essay had, I mean, oh, it's so layered there's so much that you are able to put into this little story. And I'm curious when you were reflecting on that difficult stage in your life, you know, newly divorced, sleeping on the couch of your, you know, city apartment with your two young kids, because you gave the kids the bedrooms and you'd sleep on the couch, like that, the guilt of leaving your husband when, you know, in the essay you share that he clearly did not want to end the marriage, how did you personally handle the guilt of leaving? Because I think that is something that so many of our mothers must be grappling with. Like, how do you choose? How did you handle, you know, no matter what someone's circumstances are, I mean, we're just like targets for guilt as mothers. 100%. Um, first of all, thanks for the kind words about the essay. Um, since I'm not a professional writer, thank you. Well, yes, Um, you are. Hello, you're published um, in an anthology. (laughs) I know. I mean, I've written a bunch, but you know, it feels good to hear. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, guilt is the other, um, piece that every mom carries around no matter what. Right. But then to be the mom that left a marriage and with two really young kids, Guilt was tremendous. Um, I, but I knew, like, there's a moment, and I bet you any people listening might know this moment where you're like, I can't, I can't be in this. I can't do it anymore, for whatever you know. Everyone has their own reasons, and you hit that point, and you just have to, to save yourself, save your kids, and you do it. And then, as an academic, I think I just threw myself into reading so much doing the research, talking to therapists, getting my kids in, you know, therapy to the best, you know, my my son was too young and it didn't quite work out. And then I saw a behavioral therapist because he kind of fell apart in some ways, which is, you know, obviously heart wrenching. Um, And my daughter, you know, dutifully went to therapy, but yeah, I just read everything. And then, you know, kind of the connection to this book is that I think I was also looking for books that spoke to the personal experience, the emotion, the heart. And I didn't find it. I found a lot of books like, you know, there was Idiot's Guide to Divorce or, you know, how to, and, you know, some classics, you know, that I were really helpful. Mom's dad, mom's house, dad's house. You know, there were just some classics that were so helpful. And I, you know, I just um, did the academic thing, but I really felt like the emotional part, of course, is the more difficult one. And I'm not going to say I traversed that easily. I mean, I felt 
many times um, just tremendously guilty. Mm. I think that, you know, we talked about the two rooms. I made the rooms as amazing as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like one was dinosaur themed and one was butterfly themed. And, you know, I just did so many things to try to make sure like, hey, look at us. We're having fun. And, oh, we're going to be okay. And, you know, the fake it till you make it. Um, but, yeah, no, it was super hard. You know, not to get too maudlin about it, but I ended up actually getting like a blood disorder that from like probably all the stress and, you know, it was just, I got so sick the first year and I had to, you know, we finally figured it out. And then, but it just, um, yeah, no, it was not easy. And I think Esme comes out of that because I'm like, I have health benefits. I have a job. I have a friendship network. I, you know, I'm someone who I have a PhD, like, and yet I was crushed by this. You know, and so I thought, you know, at one point, you know, in the dark of night, I was like, Mm -hmm. if I can ever make this easier for other moms. And, you know, and I knew the research. I knew about feminization of poverty. I knew how women who were divorced or widowed would, you know, drop down with their economic situation, how vulnerable they were. So all of that just made me feel like I have got to do something that can help people, you know, women specifically through this, moms. And, uh, but, you know, it took a long time. I had to recover from my own divorce. I had to, you know, grapple with the new identity as a solo mom. And then I ended up getting remarried. And then finally, secure enough, comfortable enough, ready to make the move and say, okay, let's start this this platform, this website that can support solo moms. (laughs) So, and it's great. Like, just, I feel like now this book is just like such a wonderful, you know, extension of all that work. You have an excerpt from one of my favorite writers, Anne Lamott, in the book. And I'm curious, how did you approach her about this project? Uh, I know people are like, how do you get Mary Carr, Anne Lamott, Amy Poehler? Do you know them? I'm like, no, I do not know them. I am persistent. I am good at you know, writing emails. Yeah. <laughs> and it's basically just the getting, cutting through the bureaucracy of either it's an agent mm-hmm. or a publisher. So, yeah, we just... Um, I. The only, you know, I'd say like, even like we have a Toni Morrison quote and, um, you know, we, you know, man, what a loss recently. But anyway, you know, we got in touch with her agent and we were communicating through the agent. And so it was kind of exciting, but also like we never, it's not that I have any, you know, I'm not pals with any of them. I wish I was, but (laughs) I'm sure they would be. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't live in Hudson Valley on a farm. They probably would right. Be. If I wasn't so remote with like <laughs> hundreds of just tree acres of trees around me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, she has a quote in one of my favorite books, Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing in Life, which is another book that any listener who hasn't read it yet, read it after you've read We Got This. Um, this quote she has is, if something inside of you is real, we will probably find it interesting and it will probably be universal. So you must risk placing real emotion at the center of your work, right straight into the emotional center of things, right toward vulnerability, risk being unliked, tell the truth as you understand it. If you're a writer, you have a moral obligation to do this and it is a revolutionary act. Truth is always subversive. And I thought that quote from this other book of hers really applies to this collection of essays. They feel that way. And I'm wondering, in what ways do you think this book could be a revolutionary act? Yeah, I love that you picked that. I love that book, too. You know, when I was 
when I was going through my divorce, I started taking a lot of writing classes and, of course, gravitated to that book. And then um, I absolutely 100% agree with her. Um, Yeah, I do think that our book has a potential to be revolutionary because I can't imagine reading the whole book and, you know, say you're not a solo mom, say you're a policymaker, or maybe you're, you know, head of a company, or perhaps you're a teacher, just having a window into these experiences. And I think I can't imagine that your heart wouldn't open a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of empathy and understanding. So I actually see it as something that could impact, you know, I mean, our policies right now in terms of, you know, some of them are punitive. Some of them are just not, you know, we don't have family leave, which is, you know, impossible for moms to manage sick children and their older parents. And so I think that, you know, just having these, the reality out there could soften someone enough to be like, you know, we, we need policy change. You know, so it is revolutionary. Or I need to, you know, realize that when that my a worker goes home because they're she's a sick kid, you know, it's because there's nobody else, you know, there's reasons that sometimes, you know, all of us moms have to maybe can't do what, you know, the male worker can do or, you know, I mean, I, you know, I actually found that they're working twice as hard and usually more dedicated over to, you know, in my research. But, you know, there's this sort of idea that, oh, if I hire a single mom, she's going to not be responsible. I can tell you, like, some heart-wrenching stories about moms who would take their child. Like, one I remember, she would carry her baby. Like, I think it was like a three-year-old, but it was four in the morning. She would take two buses to get that child when I'm still asleep in the pajamas to get twisted her so she could make it to her job. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, the heroic acts that I've seen from solo moms over the years just will blow your mind. And I think that having these solo moms write their truth is one that could be quite subversive. I hope <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> when you mentioned policy change, I wonder what would be like the top three things on your dream list that you would like to have happen? Well, one is, you know, raise minimum wage. Solo moms are, you know, overwhelmingly in the minimum wage jobs. So I think that would be huge. It would mm-hmm. just be, you know, we know that how, how much they're struggling. I see I'm at the forefront. I see homelessness on the, you know, and, and something they have to deal with. I see hunger as something they're dealing with. I see that they're, you know, there's fear about leaving uh, partners that are dangerous because of their economic situation. I mean, it's just so I do think raising minimum wage would be one. Second is I think we really need to have, you know, universal family leave. You know, there's just we're the only industrialized nation that doesn't have it. I mean, I, I was born in Sweden, raised in America, but I know a lot about Swedish social policy and, um, and around the world. We, we just are so behind so that would be really important. And finally, I think, you know, we got to look at universal health care because particularly vulnerable families like solo mom families, you know, literally kid, most kids have an injury where they need stitches or they break their arm. Well, this is not, it's normal, yet it's catastrophic for solo moms. Uh, absolutely, like can, they, they could lose their home. They can, you know, because they are on that edge of economic vulnerability. So it, it's not... You know, and these aren't like crazy ideas or ideas that are out there in the political landscape. So it's not, you know, I don't think, um, but it's just, I 
those three reforms would be uh, so helpful to provide a safety net to this to Solomon families. When I was little, my mom, after she, they, my parents got divorced, she worked a minimum wage while she was completing law school. And a huge part of her becoming a lawyer was her determination to never be, well, probably never be that vulnerable again, but also right. to not be in the dark. And she never wanted to feel that helplessness um, that her, the divorce made her feel. When she would come home from work late at night, like one of our rituals was always watching Murphy Brown and like eating the spaghetti that she would be able to make in like two minutes. My mother was incredible, like making like solo moms. I mean, not all of them, but I'm sure a lot of them are like so good at making meals so fast. And I go in my kitchen today and I'm like, how did she do this? (laughs) But we would eat the spaghetti and watch Murphy Brown. And, you know, there's that famous incident where Dan Quayle was concerned about how the show was making single parenting by choice seem sexy. And <sighs> yeah, I'm just, I'm rolling. I know you, I know you can't, I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> it's so, um, it, that was so disheartening and it, it's not, I know it's for some Dan Quayle sounds like ancient history, but it's not. I mean, I wrote a piece last year about after one of the mass shootings and where they were saying, oh, it's because it's a kid of a a single mom. And I was like, that is so off base. That is not, you know, let's like, I I mean, I won't go into all the politics of that, but Mm -hmm. you know, so single moms get blamed all the time for like cultural failings or economic failings. And it's Mm -hmm. just so the opposite. I mean, we have 75 Facebook groups, local groups on for Esme and I look at what's going on in Houston and you know Omaha or whatever all around the country and I can tell you those solo moms are working so hard and they're often doing it not by choice because there's you know we have an opioid addiction where unfortunately people you know partners are dying uh, partners get disabled partners go to war partners get incarcerated so sometimes it's definitely not a choice and when it is a choice it's usually a very brave one and they're doing um, incredible things. And I also have to add to that, that they actually are so generous. They are so generous with their support. They're so generous. They'll, they'll send, they'll Venmo money to each other. They'll give their baby clothes away. I mean, I've just, um, I really want to write about this because I've just seen this, so, like they're struggling themselves and yet so willing to reach a hand and help someone else. And it's just, I'm on over and over. I see it. And I just, um, I just want to, go take notes on it and just write the book about the generosity of solo moms because it's incredible. So with Esme.com, what are some of the resources that are available? So I, the one that I think is the most uh, engaging and open every day is we have a something called Sister Chat. So a mom can go on any time of day or night and get support through other moms and get information and gather wisdom. And that's one that came out of my nighttime scary feelings of guilt and all that. And I was like, God, it'd be so great to talk to somebody right now. And so um, I thought that was really important just to have this, you know, 24 hour place where you could find other moms and talk to them. And there's always someone to, to at least, they might not know exactly what you should be doing, but they can say, Hey, we hear you support you. 
We have over 5,000 nonprofits listed, so you could put in um, what you're looking for in terms of where you need help and um, what state you live in, and then we can direct you to a nonprofit that can probably help you. We also have hundreds of articles divided up, and I won't go into so many, but, um, you know, we have specific areas of, like, addiction, adoption, wellness, divorce, soul bombs by choice. So we have specific areas of, like, loads and loads of articles with advice. And, you know, like, one of our most popular pieces is about uh, co-parenting with a narcissist that seems to be the one that no matter how many times I post it, it gets shared very widely but, yeah, so we have just have all this, and we have a dating dating section and, you know, lifestyle section. So it's a pretty big site. Um, you can find a lot of things in there. But, um, yeah, so it's uh, connection, it's resources, and then there's information as well. With the Sister Chat section, I'm curious how you moderate it, because I had Hillary Frank from the podcast Longest Shortest Time on our show last spring. And her podcast had a Facebook group that was meant to be, you know, a, a community. And, you know, it was immensely popular. And then it fell apart. They had to shut it down because it became too unruly to moderate. And I'm wondering how do you all handle these delicate times? Yeah. So, you know, we have, I'll just put it out there every morning. So we don't allow anyone, first of all, we check everyone who join, who joins. Like we, so no men are on there. We get rid of trolls every morning who are trying. Every morning I wake up to a list of people who want to be, you know, on the site. And then um, we have a lot of report buttons. It's never actually been used in Sister Chat. It's used more in our Facebook groups. There are people who put posts up that, but we don't let any men like every, I mean, I can tell you, I spend much of my day just rejecting men from these single mom groups. No, no, no. You know, and then we haven't had, I think we're really open about our mission. And Mm -hmm. so perhaps that sort of, um, because it is about embracing diversity and promoting equality. And so we haven't had difficult situations yet, but there's definitely, you know, the the concern, Mm. (laughs) you know, uh, it's, and there's four of us who are constantly monitoring yeah, people have generally been really nice to each other. I just have to say, there has been, you know, I, I can only, I, I really only remember like one fight. <laughs> it was about um, whether moms who are, you know, have a deployed partner or have a partner that lives far away but they're married, you know, what, can they be called single moms? And which is a silly argument because we use the term solo mom anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, you know, parenting is really hard, and when you're parenting on your own, it's super hard, and of course your economic situation and your emotional situation and psychological, all those things, you know, it just has an impact. Mm. So just, um, we, we acknowledge like there's a lot of different experiences. Well, speaking of, you know, major impacts, you have an essay that I will be sharing in our show notes called the strength of cultural misunderstanding. And you explain how you went back to Sweden as an adult for your dissertation and you write The back and forth over a four-year period also helped me realize that most immigrants and their children will never be one nationality. When I first arrived in Sweden after being away, I would feel loud, brash, and demanding. When I came home to the United States, I felt quiet, compliant, and shy. This internal dialogue, which involved reacting and adapting to cultural differences, had a strong impact on me. And I was hoping that you might be able to share a little bit more about the impact 
that, you know, straddling these two cultures had on you as a mother? Oh, as a mother, that's a great question. I mean, I, I still go back and forth quite often to Sweden, and um, I watch my Swedish cousin's parent, and it's much quieter. <laughs> and the kids, you know, I'm not saying they're like sweet angels, but they're sort of a quiet, you know, they have one day on Saturdays is when you have candy day, you know, it's that good, <laughs> you know, and then like they, they let all the kids have candy on Saturdays, but other days the kids aren't really eating candy. You mm-hmm. know? And then, um, you know, TV is important, but not as important. I mean, I think obviously things have changed over time, but, you know, I do feel like have a lot of, I mean, my kids, I have three teenagers right now. And, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, I'm sure that they have them in Sweden, but I just feel like it's just, and I do find myself sometimes getting really like frustrated with the whole, like, oh my God, parenting is so hard. These kids, like I have to monitor so closely. And and I do, I mean, it is that sometimes I hear myself, you know, starting to yell or Mm -hmm. just get growly with them. And I think about my, you know, back in Sweden, like it just, I don't, remember them getting like that but there's also the whole cultural thing is like you know and some might say oh they're too compliant or whatever but it is it definitely is um you know when I feel uh very um you know sort of crabby and a little bit yelly with my kids um sometimes I'm like man uh, would I would I be raising them like that in Sweden I don't know but yeah that's such a good question as a parent I, I can tell you there's cultural values that are interesting in terms of, um, so like in Sweden, people are not shy about their bodies. They're not shy talking about sex. And yet in America, we're really uptight about it. And we're really uptight about, you know, just like as kids, particularly teenagers develop, et cetera. I mean, Mike, I think, you know, that is a conflict there because if you go to Sweden, you'll find that they're really uptight about alcohol Mm-hmm. And um, that's like they're and so on the weekends they're drinking like crazy and we're uptight about sex so we have lots lots of pornography and kids <laughs> having sex and you know yeah. so like it's, it's interesting to me to observe like what the hangups are in each nation and then sort of how it, it is enacted in you know your family so like you know I have teenage girls that you know sometimes they dress in ways and I'm like why are you like <laughs> and I have to realize that they're don't, they're not dressing so-called in a way to attract the sexual gaze. They're actually just trying to look more grown up, mm. you know, because mm-hmm. in America gr- being grown up because they're on Instagram, because they're on Snapchat and they, that's like, it's Kardashians look grown up mm-hmm. or their rock stars look grown up. And so their idea of being, you know, all teenagers want to look older. So they dress in ways that I'm like, no, you are not <laughs> We're not going out in that. Or I just had to tell my daughter, I'm like, you know, you're not going to wear those crop tops to school in September. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah. you know, I think that that's one of the just observations I've had, like going back and forth is that there's certain uh, cultural hangups in each country and uh, it gets, you know, you see how it's sort of expressed in your kids. And then when we go to Sweden, I actually feel like so sometimes like, so shy about how loud my family is because <laughs> we're like just um you know in the United States it's like not a big deal but I'm like and then even my spouse I'm like you're talking so loud <laughs> he's like I always talk like this <laughs> like, 
So it's just, uh, yeah. And then we were just hung out with one of our Swedish cousins came to visit and my kids were like, she's so quiet <laughs> anyway. But yeah, so um, I'm not sure if it changes me as a mom, but it certainly makes me observant about sort of like what, what they're showing and what, what they're doing, you know, and it makes me empathetic to the back and forth, like in terms of not my own children necessarily, but kids who are, um, you know, straddling two worlds, kids who are immigrants or kids. Yeah. So I understand like that yucky feeling sometimes of going back and forth and then also feeling like you should take pride in that you have the ability to go back and forth between, you know, I have two girls that are adopted from Ethiopia and so they're actually straddling two worlds. And, um, you know, we talk about it a lot. Like, what does it mean to be culturally Ethiopian? What does it mean to be, you know, black in America, be black in a white family? And so, you know, they, as a sociologist, I feel equipped to help them. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like, wow, I really cannot prepare them, you know, which is true. I can't prepare them for everything. Is there a particular book that you might suggest to any listeners out there who are, trying to navigate a similar experience with their adopted children? That's a really good question. Or a um, blog. We can share it later. I'm putting you on the spot so much in this episode, but you're so fascinated. I know. I'm like, a China, and I'm so um, <laughs> often bad at remembering things on the spot. But um, what I've done is I've joined a bunch of Facebook groups and blogs for kids that, you know, families that are connected to Ethiopia. And then, so I don't, mm. I'm trying to remember, there were amazing books at the time, but you know, my kids are now teenagers. And so they're mm-hmm. like, it was 15 years ago and I don't, yeah. I'm not going to be able to draw on yeah, the names no. of the books, but there are, um, there were, I mean, as I can tell you, I, there were like, there were books that I read that were really, really helpful. And one was, in, and I don't remember the name of it, but it was written by, um, it was all about the experience of transracial adoptees. And I remember it was so helpful because it, it just, they, they told their stories. And probably in some ways inspired my anthology because yeah. I was like, oh, that was brilliant. You know, they just so, um, I'm not going to be able to remember the name. but No, but that's I'm so sure fascinating we- that it was their stories that were helpful, like reading about other people's experiences. Totally. Yeah. No, I read all the academic stuff. And then that was, I remember um, particularly one girl, I think she was um, from China and she was adopted in a very large family. And she just said that she wished she had a sibling Mm. that was also adopted and also from the same cultural background. And I was like, I'm so glad that, you know, my daughters have each other. You know, they're not the, yeah. You know, I feel that way as well because I was an only child (laughs) with my (laughs) separate cultures, with my parents. I mean, this is obviously a stretch, but uh, listeners, forgive me. I hope I'm not offending anyone. But going back to your essay, you know, you don't mention parenting in that essay, although I I cannot wait for our listeners to read it because you, you talk about a moment when you were six years old and you were not wearing a swimsuit top because in Sweden you didn't do that and then how you were shamed in America for that. And reading that essay, it also made me think about even though you don't mention your divorce or anything like that, it's, this is just me totally projecting onto your work, but it made me think of going back and forth between my parents as a child and like the cultural differences between those homes. Like my mother's side of the family is very waspy and very quiet and terse. And my father's side is Eastern European and they are so loud. And I remember going back and forth and either I was 
you know, coming from my mother's house, I probably seemed just like so uptight and stressed out about my grades. But then when I was at my mom's house, she would always be like, can you lower the volume? Like you've been with the canouses too much. Like you got to lower the volume. Um, and to kind of go back and forth between these two different types of families and to learn how to mirror like the different tempos. And I'm wondering if you've noticed, you know, I don't even know. I'm assuming that your children have a relationship with their biological father. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any of those superpowers with your two biological children with him. Yeah. I mean, I also am a kid of divorce. And so I, um, my mom, you know, my parents were Swedish and then my mom met an American in acting class. And so she married an American actor and then my dad decided to, you know, live on a boat, (laughs) go back to his Scandinavian roots. And um, so, yeah, I totally know the feeling as a kid and remember it well. And so I was really sensitive to this um, when my kids were, you know, fortunately we lived, you know, he was teaching at Northwestern. And um, so for the first couple of years, uh, it wasn't a huge geographical transition. Mm. But yeah, I think that um, I always just, I always felt like I wanted to have a buffer. I knew transitions were always hard. And my daughter, who always wants to be on time, was always stressed out. And I always knew that, you know, we transitioned on Sundays. I think it was like Sundays and, you know, Tuesday night or something. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. remember I was like, okay, we have to be, almost create like a cottony, pillowy feeling around this. Like, I just always wanted to make it as light and easy and calm as possible because I remember the transitions were like just awful because, you know, in my mom's house, it was one way and, um, very, it become quite, you know, Americanized. And, and then with my dad, it was really Scandinavian structured and he was a little stricter and yeah. So I just, I I have a lot of empathy for that, (laughs) but I do think it's like, it does. I I know that I became a sociologist because of these experiences, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you were like, okay, there are all these different groups and there's all these cultural differences and I want to figure out how to navigate them. And I have to say my kids now are 22 and 24 and they're really comfortable in a variety of settings. Mm -hmm. Um, My daughter's teaching at a school that's, um, it's an all-scholarship school for boys, and they're primarily um, boys that are African-American, Hispanic, and um, it's in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is like, you know, a, just a departure from where the farm that she grew up. And she loves it, and she's just, just taken to it so well. And I think some of those skills came from her having to navigate you know, her dad remarried, I remarried, two families, and going back and forth, and then later taking a plane. You know, yeah. I just wrote a piece about kids that, um, you know, solo kids traveling. I got to share uh, that. You know, sort of, yeah, I hope I have to see where it gets published. Okay. I, I sent it to those airline magazines. I'm That's brilliant. This is yeah, a good yeah, idea because, to go that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because they, um, you actually learn a lot of skills, and you. You, you um, talk to a lot of people and you see that people take care of you, like flight attendants and seat neighbors. And um, I interviewed a bunch of solo moms and they were like, yeah, my kids actually 
um, were enriched in ways that I didn't expect. You know, you feel so guilty. There's nothing, it's nothing harder than putting your kid on a plane and waving them goodbye. Um, and my kids started going back and forth between Chicago and New York, and uh, it was really hard. And now they're, I mean, my kid crossed the Atlantic in a sailboat last year with my what? son. So, yeah, I know. So, yeah, I mean, so they, they I think that some of the situations that I always say that kids of divorce have, you know, resilience and they learn skills. And even when I was teaching at Northwestern, I felt like, um, you know, I'd have the ones that would collapse at their first B. And it usually mm. wasn't one of those a kids, a kid of divorce. It was someone who had, his parents had pretty much protected them from failing. And which I think is a really bad idea. I think that you need to see your kid fail in your house at least once. My advice is always have them do like the project, you know, the one that they're like, I didn't, oh, I forgot to get this stuff. And Mm -hmm. oh, can you, you know, I'm like, no, sorry, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because you want them to have the consequences and see how they deal with them under your roof. You don't wait, wait until they're gone in college to see how they handle it. I'm having a flashback to like the maddest my mom ever got at me. (laughs) (laughs) I was in third grade and we had a science fair project. And now again, like going back to that reservoir of empathy that you're like, I'm tapping into right. thanks to you. Like she, you know, very, very, very stressful job. And I told, you know, she probably needed a heads up because I had to do a science fair project and it was due the next day. So she got home from work late and I was like, well, I, mom, I need pizzas. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, my science fair project is which pizza is the greasiest? And so she had to order. <laughs> she had to order like pizzas from six different places. I mean, my God, that was really expensive. So we had like frozen pizza for so long. <laughs> and I would, but I got third place, which I might also be telling, I, some, saying something about my competition, but. <laughs> But yeah, we had, we ate frozen pizza for a really long time because that was like, you know, one of those last minute scrambles that happen all the time with moms uh, when you're a mother with your kids. But especially as a solo mom, that that is something that you're like, ah, you're you're living on the edge anyway. And it's just the thing to push you over. Yeah. Every day is really kind of this, um, you know, get it, just being organized enough that you get through the day. If anything gets you out of whack then it's kind of, you know, there's a, there's a domino effect. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons that Esme, we always say like self-care, 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know, solo moms are really good at staying up late and not sleeping because they get stuff done or, you know, not necessarily paying attention to their needs and, mm-hmm. you know, always, always sacrificing for their kids. And, you know, that can only take you so far. So we try to encourage moms to, fulfill themselves and make sure that they get the sleep they need and all that. Well, where can our listeners find you? Well, Esme.com is the website and we are on um, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram. And then the book, uh, we have a site for it called wegotthisbook.com. And um, yeah, pretty easy to find. I, I encourage you if you are parenting alone or sometimes parents alone to check us out and Say hi. <laughs> Absolutely. And listeners, you'll be excited to hear that uh, one of our own Atomic Moms guests is featured in this book, Evie Peck, who you might remember from our episode back in, I think I want to say it was April of 2016, 
she has an essay featured in this as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Lindholm. We really appreciate it. Thank your company you so much. Today. Great questions. Oh. And um, yeah, Evie Peck's the piece is hilarious. So definitely, you want to check that out. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Take care. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. And everybody, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcast app. That really helps us out. We are completely word of mouth. And so if you have a mom friend out there, tell her about us. Grab her phone and press subscribe. And reach out to us on Instagram at Atomic Moms. We really appreciate your support. Special thanks to Marika Lindholm and our first guest, Malin Ackerman. Our production assistant is Olivia Hasty. Our sound engineer is Owen O'Neill. And our fabulous original music comes from composer Jeremy Turner. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Atomic Moms.